Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back. This is the, uh, what is it, August 5th, 2020 episode, episode 57. I apologize for not having an episode the day before. Um, really, There really isn't much of an excuse other than the fact that I uh, got unfocused. I ended up going down a rabbit hole trying to learn a little more about nuclear fusion and trying to figure out how can I invest in them without being a venture capital fund or some you know rich billionaire like Jeff Bezos is and went into the uh, weird realm of uranium mines <laughs> and realizing I think that uranium is mainly the key ingredient for nuclear fission for nuclear reactors, um, not so much for the technology required for nuclear fission, uh, nuclear fusion, which I believe requires more so the use of plasma and hydrogen to contain um, like the energy source. I think that's the big problem. Um, and they're trying to build this massive reactor in France right now uh, as part of the ITER, ITER um, coalition. And I think uh, General Fusion in Canada is, I think they said they're about four years out from actually making or completing a reactor. And I think I read, I believe Lockheed Martin is trying to make smaller versions of uh, nuclear fusion reactors. But once again, there wasn't more of a an easy direct way to invest in these kinds of companies. Um, I did learn a little more about BWX Technologies, which seems to specialize in the creation of nuclear reactors, mainly inside naval ships. Uh, and so I think 80% of the revenue comes from the United States uh, Department of Defense. So looked into that company briefly, but yeah, so it's, it's something I've actually been kind of struggling with given my, uh, I think, in a positive way, it's called curiosity and uh, a negative sense. It's a lack of focus um, because I'll kind of get interested in various subjects and I'll, but instead of going too deep into it and taking notes on it, I end up just kind of opening about 10, 15 different tabs and just browsing through and reading a bunch of random things. And I think after that, I ended up going down the world of uh, fashion and beauty companies and learning about the big brands like Estee Lauder, um, LVMH, Kering, and just the kind of the hosts of brands that they um, own as part of the, the giant holding company structure that they have. And so, yeah, that, that ended up, um, I'd say, stalling the other more focused learning. And in, in one ways, I guess, I wasn't able to fully... Um, document what I had learned so that's also uh, a miss on my part and so yeah I'm just it's, it's a develop development and process um, I'm trying I'm still trying to figure out how to stay more focused so I can continuously jot down notes and document things and try to talk about some actual things that I actually do learn about in a concise manner and through this podcast while at the same time still letting myself um, continuously curate new sources of ideas and inspiration so that I can kind of go back to them later so it's a development of the system and you know the the 
the benefit of listening to the podcast is that you get you kind of get to see me fall and stumble numerous times and try to i guess strive to perfect the podcast whatever that actually means but to get to, to get to the point where i'm learning more rap more and more rapidly and learning in a more expansive manner in the realm of how i would actually invest in people something else i actually did also spend a lot of time on um was my monthly review i think i talked about um how brad felt does this uh, in the podcast episode with him and tim ferris and i decided yeah i'm gonna schedule schedule that into my own system and i know so a couple days behind for august at least but i ended up doing that on august um well saying the motions for that on august 4th and so that took up some time as well where i just kind of sat down reflected on the month of july what happened what did i do etc and then kind of knowing now what do i want to achieve for august the the monthly sprint if if you will and yeah so that took some time um i didn't want to rush it and i wanted to kind of exhaust myself of ideas but it was also uh, still uh, i think a new experience for me so i don't think if i had to kind of grade myself i want to kind of give it like a i want to say a c plus i I think i passed but you know not it wasn't that great at it so it'll take some time to get better at over time but I think yeah, in the previous episode, I promised that I would uh, do an episode actually going through a set of es- essays that James Anderson from G- Bailey Gifford and the Scottish Investment Mortgage Trust had written in relation to the age-old argument or view of you know value versus growth. You know what's better, what's the difference, etc. And so James Anderson has this five-part essay series that I and I include all the links um, in the show notes and all the kind of notes and quotes that I took out from it. But I thought. I'll try to condense all that to just kind of the key messages that I took out from it, key learnings that I had, perspectives that I came out with. Um, And the way, like Anderson kind of calls this, Graham or growth, question mark. And the five-part essays, I'd say they're broken up into these specific titles. The first part is, Will the Mean Revert? The second part is, Future States. Third part is called, Examples, Not Theory. Fourth part is, The Car Industry. Fifth is, Governance and Concluding Thoughts. So those are the five parts that I've ended up reading through and trying to condense it all. And uh, once again, these are all just opinions that I have. And um, if I, I re- I'm going to try my best not to put words in Mr. Anderson's mouth. Um, it's more so my interpretation of what he had written and also a lot of my own um, thoughts behind it. And so kind of to go straight into it, um, oh, so I believe the premise of wh- how this series got started is after James Anderson decided to um, read The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham and compare it with the uh, learnings he took out from Phil Fisher's book, The Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. And those two are the kind of, uh, you know, the cornerstone books, the so the Bible, so to speak, of value investors who learn about the field through Warren Buffett because Buffett specifically talks about the value of those two books in his investing, um, the development of his own investing philosophy. If you are not familiar with James Anderson, I would highly recommend you listen to episode 56, where I actually talk about discovering his work and more about his investment philosophy. But the highest level, this reader, he is what he calls himself a growth investor. He's an uh, with an optimistic view on companies, and he runs um, a fund called the Scottish 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 Mortgage Investment Trust. I think that's what it's called. And he's been running that, I think, for something like 20-something years. And I think the 
I didn't look at the 10 year returns, but the five year returns, I think you see something like a 20% um, compounded annual growth rate. So Kager, but obviously I'd prefer to see the 10 year track record, but I, I don't think that was easily available on the site. And overall though, I, I was more in- intrigued by his um, philosophy and approach to buying companies at with growth at an unreasonable price. And so that's kind of how it all came about and why they're kind of deep diving into this particular essay series. So that's kind of the introduction. And yeah, so the the first part um, talks about, you know, will, will it revert to the mean? And I think that's in reference to how a big part of value investing uh, lore, especially um, from Ben Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor, um, it's, a lot of it is reliant on the belief that um, there will be reversion to the mean in regards to the stock prices of assets. So, you know, if you buy it under, you know, very simply put, if you buy it under book value, then it will probably mean revert to book value. Then you, you know, the the delta is what you, um, what you would make. And that's kind of what I think nowadays people might call deep value, where you're kind of using more quantitative uh, metrics, uh, quantitative financial metrics to show whether something's discounted or not by looking, you know, price to book, uh, for example, and some might say that's quite outdated, but I know there are some people who would still utilize it for very small companies that are not necessarily uh, big enough to be inside indexes or even in the purview of um, modern day investment managers. So that's kind of what I think um, Grant, uh, Anderson kind of hints at. Where, yeah, so Graham kind of talks about the value of um, mean revision. And the big question is like, is that normal? And I think this particular essay series really made me kind of think about and question all the tenants that I had kind of just um, believed to be true, like mean revision. Um, is it supposed to happen? Like, will it happen for every company? Because in, in one ways, mean rever- markets might revert to the mean as a whole, but that's on a collective basis. It doesn't mean that every single company uh, in the market will revert to mean in terms of what their quote-unquote correct valuation is supposed to be. In one way, the whole point of valuing companies is, is because you when you say, oh, this is undervalued, in one way you're saying it's going to revert to what, it's, what it should be the correct valuation, but it really doesn't have to. There's not... And an example um, that Anderson uses is Microsoft, where Microsoft is a company that's been... I think over a 33-year period that he looks at, um, like from the point it was no longer a private company, so the first year from being public to, I think, 2018 when this essay was first written, um, it compounded at like something like, uh, what is that, 24% um, over the 33 years. And I was like, wow, that's, that's very impressive. Um, and this is, I think, on the basis of net profits. And in, in, in one way, so if you if you think about the traditional aspect of like companies' life cycles only lasting something like, what, 40, 50 years, I think common literature talks about the typical uh, sublinear progression of company lives uh, mimicking that of organisms where, you know, you, you grow and then um, you no longer grow, you cease to do that, and then you start decaying, right? And then companies die. And ergo that could be kind of reverting and to the mean of zero and if but if we look at microsoft it's been a company that you know had its ups and downs but it's been continuously growing and one can still argue one can make an argument even now that it will continue to compound wealth 
um, at least for, I believe, like another decade, given the evolution and innovation that they've had within the business. So this is a specific company that trumps um, what would be considered like what the average life cycle of a company should be. And in one ways, you know, will this ever revert to, I mean, like, will the valuation ever kind of come down to what others might consider is quote unquote normal by various valuation metrics? Um, Most likely not is my view. And I think kind of the view that Anderson portrays. And it's also just kind of questioning the idea of that fact that, you know, mean revision and even like the concept of like, you know, modern portfolio theory, a lot of it is kind of looking at, you know, just past historic data. And you start have it's it's kind of like you still have to, you still have to kind of question though what the data means right garbage in garbage out like you're still looking at let's say even at the longest like 150 years of financial data at the longest um, I think most back uh, backdated uh, data sets only go back maybe 50 years it's still looking at a singular country you, pri- primarily the United States um, and so you've 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 really limited the scope of what the realms of possibilities are and the world 50 150 years ago was it's very different than the world we have now like the amount of globalization we have the amount of technology that is just prevalent in our lives the way we just live life in general is just much more different like the cultural change that we've even had is just much more different and in one ways the very interesting thing is to look at each development in the past as um, the frozen accidents of history. Like things happened a certain way, but many of them were in essence kind of flukes. And one example that Anderson cites is how um, there's this performer, Annie Oakley, and she has this trick where apparently she um, she asks a volunteer to hold a cigarette out and she gets her gun out and she shoots the cigarette out of their hand. Usually her husband does it, but one time um, the German Kaiser Wilhelm actually volunteered while she was doing this show in Germany. And one could say that, yeah, if she actually, her, her tr- trick succeeded and she didn't miss, and so she hit the cigarette, right? But if she missed, she could have killed Kaiser Wilhelm. And then World War One might not have happened. Then World War Two might not have happened. Like, in at least in this kind, in the manner that it came out in history. And there's just so many things that you could kind of insinuate about that because, it's true, like everything that's kind of come up till this point in many ways is a result of a lot of randomness. A lot of things had to go right and wrong at the same time for all these events to come out. And in many ways, the success many companies have experienced up to this point um, are also the result of just lots of accidents. And it's kind of a constant questioning, not only our ability to forecast the future like it's highly unpredictable given how so many things have to go right and wrong um not just within the company but even around the external environment for things to pan out but also the fact that the data that one might rely on as this quote-unquote financial truth that um many would attribute to as like so for example some people who are extremely just biased into you know value is the only thing that works like traditional value investing is the only thing that works and they might cite all this kind of quantitative research and all these data data sets of past company and stock price movements and how you know value tends to revert to the mean well what if all the data that you're using a lot of it's just the result of a bunch of accidents um not just in individual companies but also just how things happened out geopolitically how things happened out in like 
financial monetary standards and how they might not repeat again um, in the future. So that once again makes one just really question, okay, well, yeah, maybe maybe this, you know, the view of modern portfolio theory definitely, I think, is highly questionable and in many cases, I think, wrong um, because the the fact that we actually have people who can beat the market for a long period of time shows that, yeah, the markets really aren't um, completely efficient. But it also makes one question the idea of just the, th- the theory of mean reversion in markets itself, that the belief that companies really will have to revert to the mean, that valuations will revert to the mean. They really don't have to. Um, also, the fact that the on the other side, well, some people would say that these high growth companies will revert to the mean and come back down to earth. They really don't have to. Um, some do, but also some doesn't don't have to. And this goes to go on for a very long period of time as well. So I thought that was, it just continuously, I think, quest, it's just the idea of just constantly questioning all these kind of old beliefs that the school of value investing has. Um, at least like these were things that I've constantly been learning about. And so the constant questioning of that and using various examples um, was quite fascinating for me. And there's this one particular quote by Schumpeter, which I think is pretty cool. And it goes, surely nothing can be more plain or even more trite common sense than the proposition that innovation is at the center of practically all the phenomena, difficulties, and problems of economic life in capitalist society, end quote. And this, uh, I believe, kind of is a great way of kind of summing up what Anderson believes is the most important kind of core principle um, in a world of uncertainty, in a world, especially when you're investing in what many, what he considers hyper-growth companies that are where their outcome it's just so hard to predict because of so many different opportunity sets that are around and so many things that could go right and wrong at the same time just because of the whole randomness of the world that's out there and how then if you were to kind of try to, instead of taking the path of extreme precision um, and trying to predict what would happen in the future using past data, it's more so looking at the principled approach, which isn't anything new. Most, I think, long-term investors believe in that. And I think um, the thought I had was, well, yeah, like the quantitative approach um, tends to probably work in very short-term style trading. And I think that's kind of what Renaissance has really mastered, um, Renaissance Capital with um, Jim Simons. Because in in one ways, I believe um, quantitative metrics can kind of explain very short-term um, occurrences. So then it allows for um, these kind of formulas to work for very short-term trades where you can go in and out. But the longer you span out time horizon, I actually think um, it gives more chance for randomness and more chance for more external things to happen. So then the the use of quantitative data becomes even harder um, and in, in many cases very, I think, unreliable. So give, given that, taking a more principled approach where you have more simplistic and more wider encompassing principles um, might make better sense if you're actually an investor who um, approaches investing in the very long term. So, quote-unquote, you're not a trader, you're an investor. And this is something the value school and growth school, growth investing schools, like if you think about Ben Graham versus Phil Fisher, um, they both kind of, I think, say it's important. You have to take a very long-term oriented view. And so the principle that um, James Anderson kind of concludes on is this the power of innovation, like how 
the companies have like, innovation is kind of at the, at the crux of change and growth. And so you need companies that have that are able to continuously reinvest in technology, reinvest in um, their core talent to be able to innovate and adapt um, to this constant changing world and also to create this new world that they envision. And that's where growth will come. And I think, and I'm going to kind of jump around everywhere. And this kind of refers, uh, the reference point here can also be made to the segment on government governance that um, James Anderson talks about. I actually... When I think about my reading of The Intelligent Investor, I really don't think there was much segment on the role of governance. And that's kind of what James Anderson highlights as well, where if the original version of The Intelligent Investor had, let's say, a good chunk of uh, a whole segment on governance, that part was continuously apparently reduced with each revision. And Graham kind of apparently is in more favor of the activist approach, where you have someone come in and do all kinds of, I don't know, financial engineering and kind of tearing up of companies and using the kind of the carrot and stick approach. And what Anderson says is, what I thought was quite insightful is how the carrot and stick approach might work for a donkey, but if you are investing in companies that are more akin to racehorses that are just amazing beasts and not um, you know lousy businesses, then the carrot and stick approach won't work. And in, when, in many ways, the common idea of activists is that they usually only have one toolkit where they go into um, distressed companies and they just want to fix it around with the toolkit that they have and the governance um, applicability of investors for these kinds of more high growth companies would be to not do anything to actually take the option of um, choosing to not do anything and actually letting the founders and CEOs build something that can actually continuously challenge the norms and just compound the growth in the future and I thought that was quite interesting. Um, just, I think he wasn't really railing on activism as being negative, but more so a different kind of activism, activism where you as a shareholder act as an actual supporter of the entrepreneurs, of the founders that are going to be leading the companies. And in many ways, it is it is kind of like a venture capital approach. Um, and I'll kind of quote James Anderson, uh, where he says, the venture capital alternative is equally relevant in thinking about returns. Recent research demonstrates cl- clearly that the return distribution in quoted equity is much more akin to venture principles than has been imagined. One consequence is that one success matters more than one failure. The value tradition finds this challenging. We're back to rule one being not to lose money and rule two being not to forget rule one. At a portfolio level, that may not be wise, end quote. And this reminds me of what George Soros says, where it doesn't matter how often you're right or how often you're wrong. It rather it matters more so how much you make when you're right and how much you lose when you're wrong. And it like this is kind of similar to like what the traditional, you know, at the very simplest level, what people consider to be the, the venture capital approach, where you have many different businesses and um, you know most will fail, most will go to zero, but the ones that win, the magnitude is so great that it over comes all the times you are wrong. And it's somewhat close to also the approach that Taleb talks about where you want to benefit from um, positive black swans where you go through a period of drip, 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 like Chinese water torture, small amounts of um, pain. And then you have these kind of spikes of like huge um, winds. But in many ways, I also think is that sometimes not similar to the the traditional value investing approach because when I think um, Tobias Carlyle, who runs the Acquirers Fund, actually shares a lot of great um, material in this segment where 
apparently I think in most times, like in like a 10 year period, value will underperform um, the market for like, I don't know, like 80% of the time. And then you'll have a period where value will just kind of, I guess, go through the quote unquote mean reversion and it'll outperform. And it just kind of makes up for the eight years of underperformance where you're just kind of making small losses constantly and nothing happening. So in one ways, I think value investing, the traditional form of value investing might actually still incorporate that kind of venture capital approach. Um, but I guess the core difference is on what kind of businesses you're investing in and how you look at companies. Um, because this then takes me to um, the view that I, what I found to be quite interesting is how James Anderson looks at, once again, the, the view of um, growth at an unreasonable price and the idea of um, margin of potential upside, where it's just a continuous look which is very different from traditional value investing, where value investing is a very program. It's very focused on this idea of risk aversion and constantly calculating the downside. But the way Anderson talks about it is, well, to to believe that, like, it's, isn't it weird to believe that you actually know what the actual downside of the company is? Because the true downside of any equity investment really is zero, right? It's bankruptcy, where you just lose your entire capital, right? That that is the lowest point you could technically go. So if you, the the notion of, okay, well, I'm going to calculate a margin of safety, and, it, and I think that's what it is, where it's it's still in a probabilistic basis, right? It's not an absolute, but in one way, a view of total risk aversion where um, you're constantly looking to quote-unquote cap the downside makes it seem like you actually know what the absolute downside is, but in, but that might not actually be true. Like, that's what happened with me, where... I remember when I did a deep value investment and um, I was buying something, I think I was buying a company for something like, uh, what was it, 30% of net asset value? And I was like, okay, well, great. Um, you know, that's the, I have a great margin of safety there, but I didn't realize that the company <laughs> um, could go to zero. And so it, that's what it actually ended up doing. And this is one uh, small data set, so I can't really say that, you know, this speaks to the larger whole, but it kind of speaks about how the true downside of every stock investment really is zero. Um, to believe that you can actually know what the kind of capped downside is, is kind of folly in one way. In one way, you're kind of playing with fire. Like you're playing with the idea that this other black swan event might not happen that can actually bring everything down to zero. Um, so if, but if you think about the opposite view, if you believe that the company can actually go down to zero, then you can look at the total upside where okay then how how much greater does how much greater upside potential does a business have considering that it can actually go to zero um, and that's what James Anderson kind of talks about as the potential the margin of potential upside it's not that he ignores valuation but it's kind of looking at um, given the possibility of everything going to zero looking at whether the upside is substantially higher than the downside which I think is a different way of looking at um, companies and it's you know, somewhat for me, it was quite refreshing, uh, I must say. And I think one of the particular uh, essays does a more deeper dive um, into the case studies of Coke versus Facebook and how, like, uh, back in the early 1990s, like, Charlie Munger kind of did the margin of potential upside equation where he looked at Coke and said, okay, well, for Coke to be a $2 trillion company um, by the year 2034, all these things need to happen. Um, and Coke had a period where it actually, you know, compounded wealth at a very decent rate. But 
um, we can kind of easily say that after, let's say, like the 2010 period, like in the last 10 years, it hasn't really done well um, in generating any kind of great alpha. Um, in one way, its market cap has actually stalled and the business it might actually be in a bit of a decline. And so it, it's kind of really far from the true trillion market cap that Charlie Munger was talking about. But that's kind of looking at, it's the view of looking at the potential, mar- um, the potential upside of an investment compared to, um, and so the other side, uh, of the argument is what James is um, Facebook. And so James Anderson constantly does a case study comparing these two products because they have similarities. Facebook and Coke both have highly addictive products. Um, and in one way, that highly addictive functionality creates a sense of margin of safety um, with the business itself because of how entrenched the products may be in the lives of people. Um, and, and in many ways, both of these companies might actually help people be better off if they didn't exist because of the addictive um, nature. Like, I think, I don't know, I guess it's debatable with Facebook, um, but in some ways people could be potentially better off without having Instagram and Facebook because of the addictive tendencies that it creates with an obsession with showing off and all these kind of negative psychological factors. For Coke, it's more so the health factor um, related to all these bad um, sugary drinks that they create. Um, So we know the kind of, like the downside there uh, where, it's highly addictive, so it kind of might create a cap on the downside. But at the same time, we both know that um, if these companies didn't exist, you know, would society really be out of balance? Mm, questionable. They might actually be better off in the very long term. You could actually make that kind of argument. Um, but if you were to take the opposite view and say, well, which one has the bet- has better opportunities for substantial upside? Probably Facebook. They like even if we look at the subsidiaries, like um, Coke subsidiaries are like you know companies like bottled water company Dasani. What is the upside for bottled water, really, right? Whereas Facebook, you know, what can they do with Instagram? What can they do with WhatsApp? I mean, the the possibilities just seem so much greater. Um, so and that's what kind of James Anderson kind of talks about, where when you try to flip it and do the inverse and kind of look at what are the various substantial upsides um, that are available. Um, like the levers that these companies can pull. I think that's a very interesting view at um, looking at these companies. And um, what else? This, I think this might, um, I'll kind of maybe end off in this kind of final quote. So this is a quote um, from, I believe, either the second last or last uh, part of the series. I think that the world so brilliantly described by Ben Graham is unlikely to return. That's partly because he and his exceptional followers have been so influential. As Charlie Munger, aged 95, as of writing this uh, essay, remarked about quote-unquote groupie fund managers who follow Berkshire principles, they are like a bunch of cod fishermen after all the cod's been overfished. They don't catch a lot of cod but they keep on fishing in the same waters. That's what happened to all those, all these value investors. Maybe they should move to where the fish are, end quote. And I think this is something I talked about in episode 56 as well. And this is the direct quote from Charlie Munger where, yeah, like in, in many ways, value investors or people who are following what Buffett and Munger did are kind of forgetting the principles of value investing. And once again, kind of trying to find rules and um, quote unquote evidence that backs up um, their decision to continuously follow someone else's tactics and strategies and saying this is going to work out just like it did for these great investors it's going to work out for me for the coming future but the reality could possibly be that the future is so much more different we live in a much more different time um, we live in a time possibly where companies might not actually follow the sublinear model of organisms where you actually 
go through a period of growth, stopping growth, and then decay over like, you know, 40, 50 year period, but actually super linear growth, much like cities, where um, for cities, they, it's not that they go through the period of growth, stoppage, and decay. One can argue that these cities have continued to grow and flourish. Like you look at big metropolitan uh, cities like New York and London, and you can look at like Shanghai. Um, Hong Kong might not be as a great example now, but you think about these major cities um, that people all know about, and they've continued to flourish. They've continued to grow, and in many ways, they're kind of following up this power law where they continue to bring in more people. Um, like LA is is still the most relevant place in regards to movie, film, and media. Um, it was like that 50 years ago, and it still is. In in many ways, it might even be more so. And one can say that because of remote work and globalization, that things might spread out. It's true, things will spread out. However, the value of cities will continuously, I think, compound over time. And in one way, it's like that's a different way of looking at companies, where if you stop looking at companies as growing, stopping, and declining, and as actually having a much longer uh, time frame of actually being able to super linearly grow for a very long time just following the power law, power law curve, that could be quite interesting. Um, it's especially because I think, like this, this, this isn't what James Anderson says, but this is kind of what I've been thinking about. Where, in one ways, companies of the past had such high barriers to entry because of. Um, finances and all the equipment costs and like you know for example if you want to start a company sometimes you just have to start like a manufacturing plant or like a tech company you had to have all these server farms and you know build all these uh, server storage capabilities yourself and it cost a lot of money before um, because and so then that made the, the idea of starting a business um, pretty hard to do you needed all the venture capital financing and so the barrier to entry was high and then in many ways the barrier to exit was also high you couldn't really quit that easily because you invested so much money up front so then you're kind of stuck in this um, business race um, even though the business might not be great you're kind of stuck doing it because of all the upfront costs that were associated so that, that could have actually contributed to what i think um this sublinear model for most companies where they actually end up living longer than they really should um compared to what is now the case where it's so much easier to start companies, um, the cost is so much lower, but at the same time, it's also so much easier to kind of wind down companies because really, you didn't really put that much up front, so then it doesn't really require much um, stress when you're just winding back down. So that could actually really create a different model where most companies die really quickly, but companies that actually succeed can last a really, really long time. Um, so that could actually change the model of how we look at this business, the life cycle of a business um, as well. But yeah, so you know, I kind of ran, rambled off uh, in a weird tangent near the end, but this particular essay series I thought was very thought-provoking um, because it really did challenge a lot of the learnings that I had. And also I think it, um, for me, was a bit of a permission to think deeper into the ideas that I was exploring um, because I had been really questioning the realm of value investing. A lot of my investment process has been really changing to adapt more to how I see the world. Um, and so this was pretty interesting. Like James Anderson does conclude, like he concludes that how, you know, it's not that growth is better than value and neither is value better than growth. They're just two different styles um, with many similarities, but he just kind of points out some differences and some different ways of thinking um, that might not be actually commonly talked about in um, the modern world of investing for example because I, I and i agree too like i feel like value investing has a much stronger voice despite long periods of underperformance by the broader community i think 
um, it still has a stronger voice. There's a lot more value investors who write more books and talk more about it. And there aren't that many, I think, growth investors um, that talk about this stuff other than really Terry Smith and um, James Anderson. Like there might be a few others. Like I think Michael Shearn might be considered part of this. Maybe even Josh Tarasoff. Um, maybe Rob Vanal is part of this as well. But um, that's at least those, those are the investors that I um, gravitate towards more. So that's how they're the group that I could considered like quasi growth and a little bit of value um but yeah this is this was a pretty interesting series i hope this was interesting um especially if you were indoctrinated in the school of value investing this would be a different point of view um but even if you're completely new to both growth and value investing um this would kind of give a different perspective on um on both styles of investing i hope so yeah, hope this was interesting. Um, and yeah, the links are available on the show notes so you can actually go and read the entire five-part series. But yeah, thanks for tuning in and hope you have a wonderful day. Take care.